So friends, sometimes Sundays are a great blessing for me in, in strange and deep ways. Like today, for instance, I was profoundly amazed and bewildered at the um, some of the details that happened here today. In the morning, Andrew was preaching on Leviticus 16, and he started his, the, his sermon with a very similar question that I was actually starting my own sermon. And that spoke to me in a very particular way, because I think it's a question that is um, very important for, for us in this age and time. Um, if you pay attention, and I hope you did, he was questioned about the fundamental truths of Christianity in terms of how the cross was so special. So if you see like Christianity and the legacy in this country as it is portrayed in many media outlets as a, a, a fashion from the past, as something that is dwindling, as the number of churches are diminishing, and some of them are even being turned into coffee shops, or into mentions to the rich ones, the very rich, by the way. Christians, even the ones in church, and their attitudes towards this legacy of Christianity has been somehow, I would say, demeaning towards the great influence that this uh, religion, that Christianity once had in this country. So we may ask, why is this happening? Why suddenly people see Christianity in, as something of the past, is it that they found something better? Is it that science, perhaps, has found, you know, all the answers for the questions of the soul? Is it that they found better reasons, you know, for all the things and, you know, these reasons that were once attributed to this, uh, an imaginary man on the side have now other meanings? I beg to differ, and I hope you too. Perhaps one of the main reasons, and here is where I profoundly agree with Andy, is because we do not know God. People do not know God. That includes people here in church, but especially people outside the church. Perhaps we do not know him enough. We do not spend much time contemplating these truths that have been revealed to us in digesting, in assimilating them. So we should ask this profound question. Who is this God that we worship? Who is our God? And as we do so, I think most of the conversations that we have, most of, of these questionings of who a person is, we start with meeting someone, we start having some interaction, sharing some commonalities perhaps, I think everyone may relate to that, in asking their name, where they are from, and so on. So as we approach this very text tonight, let's have that in mind, that we are confronted here, like with this image of God being introduced, or introducing himself to Moses in the wilderness. We see this powerful image of Moses in a bush, a bush that is burning, but is not being consumed so we're going to have this opportunity to see um, what God is, who he is, and what we are. We'll see God willing that he is much and we are not. So first, I think the first point that we'll see here, we see the pursuit of God. 
So first point is the pursuit of God. I think many of us are very familiar with the story of Moses and the burning bush. It's a very fundamental um, uh, story, especially in the Old Testament. The people of God, let's try to recall some of the details. The people of God, they were being terribly afflicted for 400 years in the land of Egypt. And despite and against all odds, what happened? They were actually prevailing. And they were prevailing to an extent that Pharaoh wanted to do something against them. They were growing in us. So he tried, in many ways, he tried killing babies. He tried increasing their their burdens. And now the latest thing in that time was that he had increased once again. And Moses one day had witnessed that. We see that in chapter 2, that he witnessed uh, an uh, Egyptian um, beating a Hebrew, beating one of his brothers, and he took action. He tried to take the matters in his own hands. He tried to make a difference. He tried to bring deliverance to his friends, didn't he? And what happened? I think we all know that didn't go well. Moses ended up fleeing to Midian. He had married Zipporah, one of the seven daughters of Jethro. And he was living kind of a frugal life there. He was being a shepherd for 40 years. Don't miss this detail. For 40 years, he had been not the mediator of a covenant. He had been a shepherd of sheep. Until that day, until this day that we get here in Exodus 3. Moses, now an octogenarian, you know, an eight years old folk, he had decided to take this flock further away a little bit. And he had arrived at this mountain, Horeb, a name which means desolate, you know, remote, a wasted land. Actually, even the name sounds a little bit horrible, isn't it? Horeb, horrible. It's, 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 it doesn't sound good for Pastor Moses, does it? Until he, he, sees, he sees this fire burning in a bush. So there's this thorn bush with this fire. And the, the amazing thing is this fire is not consuming the bush. Dry bushes, you know, in a desert, they're almost like hay. They would catch fire very easily. This wouldn't be a new thing for Moses. The new thing, the unusual side, was that the bush wasn't burning. So he did what it was natural to do. He says, I'm going to approach it, and I'm going to have a look at it. And as he approached, something else happened. Because in that fire... The angel of the Lord appeared. And there was a voice speaking to Moses, that who called Moses, Moses. What an image, isn't it? Like, imagine. Can you, to imagine this scene in your mind? I think it actually we could dwell in these verses. There's so much that it could tell us. Uh, there's so profound theological truths in it. But let me try to consider some. The first thing I think we let's give it a name, like appearance like that in the Bible, when the invisible God chooses to make Himself visible, they are called theophanies. It is God showing Himself, a theophany, revealing Himself through a perceptible mean. Then notice the location, and this is beautiful. Moses is in this remote, desolate place, isn't he? Far away, uh, pastors would. Perhaps take the sheep to grace for one day. He was probably 
uh, one day and a half to, to almost three days away from home. So he was fouled. And we see that God appeared there in the midst of nowhere, not propelled by Moses. Moses wasn't searching for God. God found Moses in the middle of that wilderness. So we see here this pursuit. Do you see it? Like it, it's God who appears there. God who is the seeker of people. Perhaps you can apply that to you. Perhaps you look at yourself and you see yourself in a wilderness. You see yourself perhaps far away, detached, in a remote place. But God can turn to you. And God will turn to you. Here perhaps... Your heart is burning right now with these words. Perhaps you know that the calling of God in your life is arriving. So hear him calling you and turn aside to him. He is the searcher of human souls. We are not. We are runners. We run from God at all times. So we've seen this pursuit of God in a very beautiful way. But there are other things that we could consider here. Let's, let's have a look at the image itself. Elsewhere in the Bible, actually is very consistent across the Bible, that this image of fire is frequently associated uh, with God, with appearances of God. We see, you know, the, the, the pillar of fire that led the, the people in Exodus. We see the angel with the flaming sword. We see the smoking pot in Genesis. Uh, fire is usually this symbol of God's presence, of God's holiness. So as Moses walked towards the bush... He walks towards what is holy. The, the voice actually says, Moses, Moses. Let's just, let me just read from, from the verses actually here. So verses um, 4 and 5. What, what do we see? When the Lord saw that he turned aside of Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So it was customary actually in the, in the ancient times for people to remove their sandals. It wasn't like a, a new thing. Moses was probably familiar with, with that. For in, in Egyptian temples, there was a, a custom, you know, that you, when you enter into temples, into holy places, into sacred places, you would remove your sandals. It was a sign of reverence, a sign of submission, a sign of consideration. But please notice that it wasn't just this warning that is issued here, but actually it's immediately followed by an identification, a proper identification. So God is saying, look, it's not just an Egyptian deity here. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of of Jacob. And I think it may look like as a surprise to us for if you see what was Moses' reaction as soon as he heard that, what, what did he do? And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Why is that? As soon as the identification is issued, Moses had this almost alien reaction to us. What do you make of this reaction? The other day I was listening to an account by John MacArthur, a very good Baptist, by the way, and he was saying that um, a man was telling him that he, um, he had 
he was shaving in the bathroom and he had seen God. And then John MacArthur actually asked this man, so what did you do? So you've seen God? Did you continue to shave? And, and to the which the man said, yes, I did. So, so no, you didn't see God. Had you seen God, you had fallen to your bathtub. You know, like, to, to be confronted with the holiness of God, is a, is a, there's a trauma. It's a traumatizing experience because we are not holy. We are sinners. We are, we are like the bush that is consumed by this, this fire. So let me ask you again, have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt this, this trauma of the holiness? Have you ever thrown yourself to your knees trying to hid, to hide your face away from God? And sometimes I fear that perhaps we have grown too insensitive or are almost desensitized to these experiences. Because Moses saw that bush and he turned aside to it. We run away from it. We don't want, we don't want to have that sort of experience. We are actually, most of the times, quite happy with this depiction of a meek God. But our God, says in Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. If you want to have a God of love, we need to understand that the way that he introduces himself to us is through this fire. Our God is a consuming fire. If you want to see his love, his mercy, we must understand his holiness. But I think that you see the other side of, of it as well. For we see great beauty there. For as I was saying, the same manner that this bush, this dry bush, is not being consumed, so are we who are in Christ. No, as, as we were saying, we are sinners. No, God is holy. Our sins are just as flammable to God's holiness as the bush is to the fire. But we can approach him. We can approach him with boldness. We can approach him knowing of his mercy that he would preserve our lives. And even today, we can enjoy the burning, you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And it's the God's nearest presence that we could experience and we are not consumed because of his love. He is holy. We are not. So we've seen the pursuit of God. We have seen the presence of God. We've seen now the promise of God. You know, apart from the language, of, of course, you know what is a great difficulty for me sometimes in reading these ancient narratives? It's because it's very easy for us to miss the drama of it. Sometimes we grow too familiar with the accounts. And, you know, we, we don't get the, the climax of the unfolding of these events. We know what is to happen. Like, as we are reading here, as, you know, Exodus chapter 3, we know that all that is going to happen, that God will deliver uh, his people from the hand of Egyptians. But let's go back again. Try to imagine 400 years, four long centuries, these people have been afflicted. Imagine these 40 years. Sometimes people try to divide Moses' life as well into three forties. So he spent 40 years in Egypt, then he fled, and he was, uh, he had spent 40 years in Midian now. 
during all this time, these 400 years, people had cried, people had lamented, people had prayed incessantly, asking God for deliverance. What, what had happened? They might have thought, no, God is silent. Perhaps, you know, we are surrounded by so many deities here, perhaps our God is not as mighty as we thought. Perhaps he's not hearing our cries. But God reminds them here, if you see, especially in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings. He knows it. It is with this great empathy that he approaches Moses here. We, and we can detect also the sense of, of urgency, isn't it? Like, no, God can't wait for Moses to come back and, and to meet in the temple, whatever they had in Midian. He had to appear just now. God has come down to deliver his people. He had to appear to Moses to call him to snatch his people from the grapes of Egyptian slavery. And not only that, you see that it's more than just deliverance. Actually, there's a great promise here, isn't it? There's a promise of this land that it will be a fertile land, a land flowing. And flowing here, the word is actually almost like gushing. It's flowing abundantly with milk and honey. So it's a great promise. So maybe you, you miss this, this thing here, this detail. That actually, even the, this event, this episode with Moses here is a foreshadow of what was going to happen. Imagine, uh, Moses was in Egypt, then in the wilderness, and then in Sinai, in the Mount Horeb. The same thing was going to happen to the people. You know, the people were in Egypt, they were going through the wilderness later on, and they would meet God at Sinai. So it's, it's a beautiful image. But don't miss the drama that is here. For we know the end of the story. But they didn't. They didn't know at the time. So what was the, the response that Moses gave? When God says, because God is saying here, he has come down to save his people. He says to Moses, come, let us go to the Pharaoh. Let us go to, um, to Egypt to deliver my people. Moses doesn't say, oh yes, let's go. Yeah, well, you are God. I know that you're going to deliver. No, what does he say? He doubts. He asks. Who am I? Doesn't he? It's a, it's a strange response. And actually, in, in, in the original language, there's a beautiful play of the words. Because if you see Moses' question here, we can actually read in a different way. So if you put a finger there in, in, in the verse 11, who am I? I'll, I'll read it in a slightly different way. So who am I that I am to go along to Pharaoh, that I am to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. That is pretty much the way that God responds to him now. He says, I am with you. So the point is, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. I will be with you. I promise that I will deliver my people from Egypt. And I promise you that my people will serve me on this very mountain. It is to be a huge display of God's sovereignty once this story unfolds in the Bible. Because he promised here and he fulfills it. 
And again, we know the end of story. So we can benefit even more from this passage. For we can appreciate the full extent of, of God's faithfulness. He's faithful to his promise. He's powerful to deliver them. And we can marvel of the perfection as we see these events taking place. So perhaps, again, like the Egyptians, you are struggling with this, the burdens and the afflictions of this life. Don't get me wrong, friends. Like, life is, this life, this present life, is much more characterized by suffering than anything else. These mortal bodies that we have are constantly battling illnesses, and depression, anxiety, you name it, decay. You know, our, our souls, our fallen souls, we are in a constant spiritual struggle with our will. We want to do something and we do something else. We constantly are drawn to iniquity and we let sin prevail in our lives. So should we not do this? Perhaps we may pause this a little bit, a moment now, and let us renew our vows with God. Should we not look at this passage here that we're seeing and remember that we have a God of great deliverance, a God who promises to deliver us and he who is powerful to deliver us. Because as we see this foreshadow here, we see also the foreshadow of Christ. Don't we? Like God used Moses, one man, to save his people, as he used Christ to save his people. So let's remember, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about him. Don't try, as Moses did, to overcome your struggles on your, with your own hands or on yourself. Cry out to God and wait. At his time, he will deliver you. Hear his call and follow his word. So finally, in closing, we see one of the epicenters, actually, of the whole Bible, perhaps, but certainly of the Old Testament. We see God's revelation of his name to Moses. I hope we had more time to dwell in this, but let's try to go through it very quickly. As we said in the beginning, it's a discourse of introductions, isn't it? Like God introducing himself, Moses asking uh, about him. Names in ancient times were slightly different, uh, not only in form as we, we see in the Bible, but also in the way that they were used, because they used to signify something about the personality of, of the person. So having asked this question, who am I, what Moses go, uh, do next, uh, does next, is actually he asked, who are you? So he asked, who am I? And now he turns to God, if you see in verse 13, it's pretty much he's saying, okay, who are you? Because Moses was pretty much satisfied with, with the um, answers that God does. Like he knows who God is, you know, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He knows to whom he's talking. So there's something more here. And I think to, com to comprehend what is behind this question of who are you, Moses, is posing, we need to uh, consider the context. Egypt was like a world power here. We see even by the pyramids that we can see today. So try to remember that drama. Remember the 400 years. Remember the 40 years. Remember this multitude of deities in Egypt. Remember this great power of Egypt so what Moses really wants when he asks, who are you, is that he wants assurance. 
He wants, he wants to know where this credibility, okay, you are promising me this. How can I know that you are powerful enough to accomplish this? Because he knows that when he would go to the people, people say, oh, how can you tell me that, you know, that God is actually able to deliver us? For 400 years we've been here. So look at the way that God responds. He pretty much bypasses the first question. And then he says, I am who I am. Meaning, I am who the one who always is. God is the one that never changes. He is. He is always present. There is no point in talking about a God who was or a God who will be. God is. Space and time in any Thing created can be attributed to him. He cannot be related to created things. He resides outside of this creation. He is in eternity. I am who I am. And you know what? And he is good. And he is great. And he is holy. And he is a saving God. So the answer that Moses receives when asking, Who are you? is not a name. At least not merely a name. It is a proclamation of God's authority. It's the essential reality of, of life and creation and everything beyond. The name actually, uh, you probably noticed when I read, when we find this capitalized or small caps in our Bibles, is the name Yahweh. Uh, that usually actually describes, they would put just the four letters, the tetragrammaton to avoid saying this name, so they would replace it by uh, Adonai or Hashem. But the point is not this. It's the point is, we who know the whole story, we should be much more zealous by the name of God. We know that Moses, by God, went back to Egypt. We know that the plagues, we know the deliverance, we know the crossing of the Red Sea. We know that it was with great deeds in the mighty hand that God delivered them from Egypt. All, everything, every single yota, according to his word. But we know more. We know of the great deliverance that we have in Christ. Because the same God who offered the deliverance to Hebrews that day is today offering deliverance to us. He is today offering a covenant through a better, a better covenant through another mediator who is Jesus Christ. See that reference that we quickly skip about the angel of the Lord? That wasn't merely a theophany. There was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. There was Jesus Christ. That was what scholars call Christophany. The same voice who searched for Mo- Moses in that wilderness is today is speaking through this word to us. And he has come with great power. He has come with stretched hands to conquer sin on that cross. He has come by his resurrection to conquer death. And he has this reliable authority that we can trust him and have a relationship with him. He has given us, left with us, fire burning within us that we would not extinguish. He has given us the Holy Spirit that we can trust him that we can live to him and to his glory, that we can exalt his holy name above all things, not just now, but forever. He is, 
and we are His. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who dwells in eternity. You are a God who never changes, and we can totally rely on your word, for you are faithful. Forgive us, O Lord, that we do not know you enough, and reveal yourself to us daily. Draw us to your word. Draw us by your spirit to live closer to you. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.